reading of God's Word from Philippians, the fourth chapter, verses 11 through 13. Hear now God's Word. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. I do believe that we live in perilous times, but I am not using that term to describe popular end-time doomsday scenarios because I do still believe in the total victory of Jesus Christ and His church. Many Christians have lived in perilous times, far worse than what most of us face. Nevertheless, we are in an ancient cosmic battle, and the stakes could not be higher. COVID-19 has disrupted and inconvenienced our lives. It has created fear and uncertainty, and it is a threat at many levels, the disease being only one of those threats. In fact, I am convinced that there are far greater threats that are currently playing out, and COVID-19, while a real problem in and of itself, is certainly being exploited for other more insidious and nefarious purposes. For still, as Luther penned, our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. Let me put it this way. I think it's entirely possible that this time next year we will be pining for the good old days of the summer of 2020. The political, economic, and religious fronts are all powder kegs. Our greatest danger, though, is that we will allow ourselves and our children to be cheated through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. If Christians don't have their own awakening and begin to take the faith seriously, way more seriously than we have, then we are all in for a very long road ahead. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. In other words, we better get woke ourselves or else we are going to be crushed. A few weeks back, I began to address the foundational question of what's wrong with the world And this was both a big picture as well as a personal question. And the answer to both is the same. What's wrong with the world is sin. And the solution to what's wrong with the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the only solution. The gospel is the only effective vaccine 
against the global pandemic that is always fatal, 100% of the time, apart from the gospel. And until the whole church takes the whole gospel to the whole world, things are not going to get any better. I recently preached a sermon on the comfort of the sovereignty of God to remind us of what Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. And then for the past two Sundays, I have shifted gears to address some very personal issues. And uh, going forward, we talked about bitterness, and now we're going to talk about contentment. I do intend to come back to the broader issues that we face, but in order to be equipped to take on these bigger issues, it is essential that our own attitudes, our own hearts, and our own relationships are where they need to be. We need to be operating from a place of strength. We cannot focus on the larger battles if we are consumed by our own personal battles. We cannot be victors over the world if we cannot even be victors over our own hearts. Now, bitterness and contentment are some big personal categories where if we are applying Scripture and following Christ, there will be new and godly attitudes that will spill over everywhere. As a result, you and I will be strengthened in our walk with God and in our communion with one another. This will enable us to prepare to take on whatever comes our way in the days ahead. And so we have considered the sin of bitterness primarily as it relates to relationships with other people and with God. There are several evidences that can be present of of bitterness that's in us. But one way that it often manifests itself is it comes out in the form of grumbling and complaining. These can be complaints about what we have. For example, our parents, our spouse, our child, our job, our car, our house, you name it. Or they could be complaints about what we don't have. A spouse, a different job, a better car or house, or money. We can add a very long list there. Or complaints about our circumstances. The weather, too much of this or not enough of that. Injustice, again, very long list. You see, bitter people are never content. They can't be. They can find something wrong with everything and they are not grateful for what they do have. Bitterness is like those blinders that they put on mules. Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book in 1648 titled The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment where he lamented, and I quote, Oh, that we could but convince men and women that a murmuring spirit is a greater evil than any affliction, whatever the affliction. On the other hand, content people have learned to be thankful, 
and full of gratitude even for the smallest things. Everything in this fallen world, you see, is bittersweet. Everything except God. Nothing else, everything else is broken. I love my wife dearly, but she's not perfect, and my children are not perfect, and my house isn't perfect, and my dog isn't perfect, and you're not perfect. In fact, the whole creation groans. And what does God say that I am to do with all those imperfect things? Give thanks for them and rejoice in them. Again, I say rejoice in all things. And so he calls us to look at the world in a different way. So our baseline this morning starts with the quantity and quality of our complaints versus the quantity and quality of our thankfulness. So do you complain more or give thanks more for your parents, your children, your spouse, your job, or your circumstances? Every fly can find a sore. Do you primarily see faults or virtues? A bitter or discontent heart can be bitter and discontent even when they are surrounded with blessings and abundance. Because you see, the secret to contentment and our discontent, uh, excuse me, the secret to contentment isn't primarily tied to your circumstances. It is primarily tied to God himself. You might be under the circumstances, but God is always above the circumstances. And so the complaining person cannot be close to God. And their complaints and discontent are flashing neon signs that declare, I am not walking with or trusting in God. The the content person sees God at work in all things. And they are confident that he is working all those things, good, bad, or indifferent, all those things they are confident are being worked together for their good. In other words, they trust God. Again, Jeremiah Burroughs observes, Now this is a mystery to the carnal heart. Perhaps they think God loves them when he prospers them and makes them rich, but they think God loves them not when he afflicts them. That is a mystery. But grace instructs men in the mystery. Grace enables men to see love in the very frown of God's face and so come to receive contentment. This is why James, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, could write such an absurd thing as this in James 1. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Just listen to that. Really? I'm supposed to count it all joy when I suffer various trials. Why? Because I've learned to see God's hand in it. I've learned to see that God is at work in me. 
God is forming Christ in me. God is giving me wisdom. God is bringing me to a place where I lack nothing. Contentment is a Christian virtue, and as the Apostle Peter admonishes us, give all diligence and add to your faith virtue. This is an active work of God. We're to be accumulating more and more virtue, and contentment is one of those virtues. Now, this isn't an easy thing to do because we live in a world that surrounds us with things that feed our discontent. The world is full of false promises about what will make us happy. If only I could have one of those. If only I could look like that person, then I'd be happy, right? Mick Jagger and Keith Richards wrote the famous song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, in 1965, which captures the discontent heart. I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try and I try and I can't get no, I can't get no. When I'm driving in my car and that man comes on the radio and he's telling me more and more about some useless information supposed to fire my imagination, I can't get no, oh no, 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 hey, hey, hey. That's what I say. I can't get no satisfaction. That captures most of our hearts. Envy and covetousness are the primary driving forces that leave us empty. In fact, it would be easy for us to despair that we will ever be able to attain contentment. But the Bible teaches us not only that we must be content, it goes beyond that and it tells us that we can be content. It's attainable. Eyes on Jesus are the key. Just to make it simple, you remember the words to that old hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. In order to learn contentment, we have to stop looking at everyone else and at everyone else's stuff, and we have to see what we have been given. And so the epistle to the Hebrews instructs us, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For He Himself has said, Jesus himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Is that not enough? In other words, God himself is the secret to learning contentment. If we have him and he has us, then we can rest and then we can have peace and contentment. Our text today was written by the Apostle Paul. And it's an amazing text, but it's even more amazing when we consider the fact that he wrote it while he was in prison. And then he sent it to the church at Philippi, and the the point is very clear. Let me read it again. Paul says, I have learned in whatever state I am, whatever condition I'm in, whatever circumstances I am in, to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound everywhere 
and in all things. I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul speaks of two aspects of contentment which he has learned. First, in whatever state, we would say whatever circumstances or whatever times is the word there that he's in. Second, in regard to his possessions. And in the next two Sundays, we're going to look at those two things more particularly. Today, I am introducing this subject of contentment. His summary is this. Everywhere and in all things, that covers it, right? He has learned to be content. Just think about you being able to say that. Everywhere in all things, I have learned to be content. Of course, we'll need God's grace to strengthen us and enable us to do this otherwise impossible thing. But every one of us has the responsibility to learn contentment, and learning takes effort and it takes time. It is a process which is a part of our sanctification. Many think of, or or quote uh, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but the context of this passage is really the exact opposite of how it's often used. Philippians 4.13 is right in the middle of a discussion about contentment. What the text is saying is you can learn contentment, but, but, but only by looking to and relying upon the power of Christ. Paul tells us that he has learned to be content in both pleasant and unpleasant circumstances, including prison. Now, there's an exception. There are often exceptions in the Bible. Jesus is, uh, just as there is a righteous anger, so too there is a godly discontent. Ironically, in order to learn general contentment, we must first be filled with godly discontent. So if we look back one chapter from Paul's statement in Ephesians, Philippians 4, we read a passage that sounds discontented. Philippians 3, 12-14. He says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me, Brethren, I do not count myself as having apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This godly discontentment of chapter 3 is a necessary component of learning true Christian contentment in everything else. So contentment doesn't mean complacency, but it rather requires holy ambition. To understand what Paul means when he says that he hasn't attained, we have to look back to verse 10 of chapter 3. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. So Paul knew Christ... But he wanted to know him better. Does that describe you? 
How could you know Christ at all and not want to know Him better? In order to do that, Paul would have to share the sufferings of Christ and to become like Christ in His death, denying Himself and dying to self, living a life of selfless love and service. Gaining the right perspective on all things, how we look at things, all circumstances, is critical to learning contentment. Now, right now, I suspect, if I were to ask you, is there something you would like to change in your life? I'm sure all of you would not only have one thing, you might have many things. So that's a given. Yeah, there are things we would like to change, but... Often, we can't change them. Now what? So can you change your attitude about the things you can't change? The Bible says you can. You can learn to be content. And so getting the right perspective. Right now, do you see God's hand at work in your life? And do you joyfully submit to His work of transforming you into the image of Christ? And so this applies not only to the so-called big things, but actually to the details. Contentment comes from learning to see things from God's perspective. For example, we generally understand that we should do things that please God. But I want to ask a different question. Are you also pleased with what God is doing to you, for you, and in you? That's a different question. Once again, Jeremiah Burroughs captures this idea well, and he says, when the saints perform actions to God, then the soul says, oh, that I could do what pleases God. When they come to suffer any cross, oh, that what God does might please me. I labor to do what pleases God, and I labor that what God does shall please me. Here is a Christian indeed who shall endeavor to do both of these. It is but one side of a Christian to endeavor to do what pleases God. You must as well endeavor to be pleased with what God does. And so you will come to be a complete Christian when you can do both. And that is the first thing in the excellence of this grace of contentment. So now we want to know what to do. How do we learn to be content? You know that you should be content. Do you know how? Do you need some help? Or do you just not want to be content? Can't do anything about that last one. But the Bible's already told us that we should learn to be content. And now the question is how. And for those who are willing to learn contentment, I ran across John MacArthur's list of six steps to a contented life from the life and teaching of Paul, and I want to give those to you and expand upon them a bit. Here are some very specific ways, if you will become a doer of the word and not just a hearer, that can enable you to make progress in learning contentment. First, learn to give thanks in in and for all things. 
Paul had learned to give thanks in every circumstance, and he exhorted all believers to do the same. Thankfulness is, first of all, a matter of obedience. We are commanded to be thankful. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now you know God's will. For you to give thanks in and for all things. We could stop right here. There's five more, but that's, that's the first one. And if you just do that one, I suspect a great deal of contentment is going to start showing up in your life. Philippians 4, 5, and 6, be anxious for nothing. Anxiety and discontent go together, right? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with what? With thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God. That sounds like contentment, right? And the peace of God uh, will guard, which surpasses understanding. You may not still understand everything that's going on, but the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Thankfulness is also a characteristic of a spirit-filled believer. Therefore, uh, we read, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. From Ephesians 5. And do not be drunk with wine in which uh, it is in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Again, we could stop there. We, we just did that. Enormous amount of contentment would overflow. Second, though, learn to rest or trust in God's providence. If we truly know God, then we know that He is unfolding His agenda and His purpose in our lives, right? He has sovereignly determined each part of His plan for us so that we will be benefited and He will be glorified. Romans 8.28, you know the verse well, right? And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. And again, Jeremiah Burroughs observed, in a clock, uh, stop but one wheel and you stop every wheel because they are dependent upon one another. So when God has ordered a thing for the present to be thus and thus, How do you know how many things depend upon this thing? God may have some work to do 20 years hence that depends on this passage of providence that falls out on this day or this week. We shouldn't be surprised or ungrateful when we experience trials because we know that God sees perfectly the end result. 1 Peter 4, 12-13, Beloved, do not think it a strange thing concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing is happening to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings that when His glory is revealed, you may be glad 
with exceeding joy. Third, learn to be satisfied with a little. Paul had learned to make the the choice to be satisfied with a little, and he knew it was important for others to learn to make that same choice. In 1 Timothy 6, 6 6-8, Paul exhorted a young pastor, Timothy, with these words. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we will carry nothing out, and having food and clothing... With these, we shall be content. Paul understood that covetousness and contentment are mutually exclusive. Number four, learn to live above life's circumstances. That's how Paul lived. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10, he wrote this, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distress, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, I am strong. Paul didn't take pleasure in the pain itself, but in the power of Christ that was manifested through him in those times of infirmity, reproach, persecution, and distress we also should learn to take pleasure in the power of Christ in times of distress. Two more. Fifth, learn to rely on God's power and provision. Something happens, we kind of panic. What am I going to do? How am I going to fix this? We start immediately looking to ourselves. The first place we need to look is to Him. The Apostle Paul wrote, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And in Hebrews 13:5, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For, for Jesus himself said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He faithfully infuses every believer with his own strength and sustains them in their time of need until they receive the provision from his hand. Ephesians 3, 16-19, that he would grant you according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may be rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So trust in God's power and His provision. And finally, become preoccupied with the well-being of others. Paul summarized this mindset in Philippians 2, 3 through 4, where he wrote, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look Look out not only for his own interest, but for the interest of others. A self-centered person is a discontent person. But the soul of the generous person, the person who lives for the interest and benefit of others, and that's love, by the way, will find blessing upon blessing in his life. 
Just listen to a few verses here. Proverbs 11, 24 and 25. There is one who scatters yet increases more, and there is one who withholds more than is right, but, is, but it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. Proverbs 19, 17. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given. Luke 6, 38. Great passage that just is, is full of delight here. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, it will be put into your bosom for the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6-8, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. So there are some very practical things to work on, to learn contentment. And next week, we'll begin to look at how to be content in our circumstances, in our various positions that God has put us in. And then the following week, we will look at how to be content with our possessions. Let's pray. We give thanks to you, O Lord, secretly among the saints and in the congregation. We will sing unto you as long as we live. We will praise you as long as we have being. It is a joyful and pleasant thing to be thankful. The soul that blesses shall be made fat. When we have eaten and are full, then we shall bless you, O Lord, for the good things which you have given us. We bless you, for you have blessed us. We humbly pray that enjoying your gifts and contentment, we may be enabled by your grace to use them to your praise. We are eternally grateful for our adoption into your family. Help us now to be content and faithful children who show forth your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you want to test your contentedness before God? Would you be equally committed to God, equally happy if tomorrow you found out that all you had left was that day's food and clothes on your back? And perhaps some roof over your head that night? If not, then your heart is tied to something other than full-fledged allegiance to the Savior. I've shared this with some of you before, but it's a remarkable report that was made after a fire consumed the entire house and all the possessions of Reverend C.C. Jones in 1850. Here's a letter that was written describing that evening. We were gathered in Mr. Thompson's parlor. Brother Howe and some other friends were there. I thanked God for our salvation from the devouring fire and said to Brother Howe, we must now give thanks to God and begged him to pray with us, which he did in a most earnest and affecting manner. And our hearts were relieved at the throne of grace. We looked out. 
There was the dwelling sinking down in fire, every individual thing in it consuming. We saved nothing but what we stood in, except the few articles named. But my mind has been and was calm. It was the hand of the Lord. It was mine to use, not to hold or keep. He took but what he gave, but what was his own. It all resolved itself into a question of time only. Remember, we were talking about having a perspective. The time was coming when I must be taken from all that was consumed. It pleased God to take all from me and leave me alive. Who were we then that we should complain? In all this, we would not speak unadvisedly with our lips, nor charge God foolishly. And when we remembered how miraculously he had saved us from the devouring fire, for had Bella discovered the fire a few moments later, some, if not all of us, uh, must have perished, and how much he had preserved us, we had nothing to do but bless his holy name. When we remember our sins and how that God could justly cast us into everlasting burnings, what afflictions or distresses can possibly come upon us that we ought not to submit to with a quiet and thankful spirit? And so we now come to the table of thanksgiving, the Lord's table. Here we remember what God has done for us through His Son, It is here that we start our week with a right perspective on our lives in this world so that we can leave this place and go out and live contented lives in his service. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, you are the giver of life and the giver of salvation. You gave us your only begotten Son. You redeemed us from slavery and set us free. By your grace, you have freely given us faith that we might receive your salvation and abundant life. Indeed, you have freely given us all things above and beyond all that we could ask or think. By your love, you have poured out the Holy Spirit in our hearts. You have blessed us with spiritual gifts. You have promised us an inheritance which is incorruptible and will not fade away. Help us, Lord, to have contented hearts and to show forth our gratitude for all you have given us, that we might trust in you. Go with us now as we return to our homes and callings and help us to begin or to continue to learn how to be content in whatever state we are in, how to be abased and how to abound. May we find contentment everywhere and in all things, for we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Amen. Receive now the benediction of the Lord, but may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered for a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen.